Welcome back to Formula Glass Pod. I'm Sally and I'm with Annabelle as usual. But today we have a very special guest with us, um, Rainsford. Um, I feel like we always repost like your content on our social media and constantly talk about the book and the podcast too. So we're just so excited that we have kind of you and Flush here with us. But a quick kind of more formal introduction for those who don't know, Rainsford, she's a Kentucky native journalist turned author that dives into a lot of pressures that leads to the extraordinary life that the 20s face, but they, we have a lot of challenges that we also go through. So she kind of dives into that in her book, An Ordinary Age, and a new one is coming out, which is very exciting. She's definitely done an amazing job with capturing the current kind of cultural moment with this generation and turning that into journalism and any content that we kind of touch on. So we're super excited to have you here. Oh my gosh, what a kind introduction. Thank you all so much. Yeah, we're just so excited for to chat about an ordinary age, which we wanted to start with, but also going to more ambition identity crisis that you always talk about. Um, but yeah, we would love to kind of hear more about what motivated you to write an ordinary age and anything around that. Absolutely. So I think the catalyst for writing an ordinary age was a bunch of factors that kind of created a perfect storm. I was obviously in my 20s myself. I was talking to a lot of 20-somethings and a lot of young adults for other reporting I was doing, and I kept kind of seeing these dominant narratives play out in the media about young people. And they were narratives of entitlement, but also of disconnection, where young people were supposed to be living these grandiose, extraordinary lives that were kind of one size fits all. And no one could figure out why they either weren't meeting these standards or, on the flip side, why everyone was so determined to chase these standards down. And what I kept hearing in interviews I was doing about totally unrelated things was that everyone was feeling a tremendous amount of pressure to be enough. It didn't feel like their average, baseline, everyday, ordinary self was enough to get by in a world that feels like it is so rooted in the most extraordinary versions, the most competitive thing, the most high achieving thing, the most exceptional thing you can think of. That's what we're all aiming for. And it felt like everyone was collectively falling short of this standard that we know isn't accessible to everyone, isn't realistic for everyone, and frankly, deep down, that not everyone really wants. And so I was really interested in what would happen if we could talk about some of the big themes where I felt like these conversations were popping up, and that's certainly, you know, work and college and pressures surrounding that, but I also heard a lot about loneliness and wondering where to find meaning in a world that is very quick to tell you what your meaning is. And so I think that the combination of all of those different conversations is what became an ordinary age. We love that. I think we talked so much about it because it is something that really resonates with us. Like we've done a lot of like little topics that kind of add up to it. And we definitely feel like the pressure which is so weird because you don't really even know where it comes from like all of a sudden you're like you're in college and like you open LinkedIn and you're kind of like ooh, I should be doing something like more which kind of I think leads us to like what do you think like ordinary should kind of look like in young adults today I think that's a great question. I think the tricky part of this answer is that, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. I envision your ordinary self being kind of just having a baseline of worth, like your good enough self, not the self you earn, not the person you are five years down the line when you finally, quote-unquote, figured it out, but knowing that you deserve fulfillment and happiness and rest and all of these good things just as you are. And that doesn't mean that we don't stop learning and that we don't stop growing, but I think that there is so much pressure to kind of look over our shoulders, literally, or on social media, or just kind of internally comparing ourselves, not just to our peers, not just to other people, but I think also to the ideas of who we think we ought to be and what we think we ought to be doing, that I think being able to kind of think about, okay, 
who am I if all of the other stuff, the external accomplishment, the extraordinary standards, who am I when I just can't live up to that anymore? Uh, and getting to a point where that feels okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes most sense. And um, as I was kind of transitioning after like post-grad and to like moving to a new city and starting a job, I definitely felt that there was this expectation of like this person I should be and the things that person should be doing. But I think within the year, I'm kind of starting to realize that like I shouldn't be feeling so pressured myself to um, like build my self-worth based on like all these kind of achievements that I'm supposed to have. And that kind of leads to my kind of next question, which is um, what kind of triggered you to um, kind of touch on these subjects that I feel like not a lot of 20s are willing to kind of face Absolutely. And and to your point, this is really hard. <laughs> like settling down and saying my ordinary self is good enough as is. Like I'm certainly not feeling that way every day. I don't think in in reality any of us are because I think it's an ongoing process when everyone, I think especially young adults because young adulthood again to your point is where a bunch of all of this stuff that we've supposedly been working toward our whole lives kind of comes to fruition. You're starting to make independent decisions about what you value, where you want to live, what's going to happen next. And we all we know that all of that is contingent on the circumstances and resources that someone has and is in, but it's generally thought of as this time where everything is supposed to come together, which makes it doubly disorienting when it feels like it's not coming together the way we thought. As far as the themes that we talked about in an ordinary age, I went through at one point with a highlighter and started marking off common themes that were coming up in interviews. Uh, Some that I was doing kind of preliminarily for the book, like before I'd really started writing it and wanted to know if something was there. Some just in conversations I was having with people and honestly in conversations with my own friends. And it became very clear very quickly that even though there's a ton of diversity and nuance in how we process things and the circumstances we're in, that there were common sensations that it felt like were running rampant across the 20s. And I think in general, the big one that kind of touched on everything, whether it was loneliness and friendship or college and work or hobbies and feeling pressure to monetize those, I think the biggest blanket theme was everyone felt like they ought to be doing a little bit more than whatever they were doing at the time. And I think usually we think of that in in terms of work or in terms of education. And while that's certainly true, I was surprised to see how many themes were about deeply personal life transitions, like trying to figure out how to make friends as an adult and feeling like you're the only one who's lonely or trying to figure out where to live and what it means to have a community. And so really all credit to the people who made time to speak with me on the themes because those conversations definitely informed the directions we decided to take in the book. I think it's so crazy because like we all feel it, but we're all so scared to talk about it, especially the loneliness part. I think partially why we did the loneliness episode was it's just such like a it's such a feeling that, you know, we all experience, but we're all like a little too ashamed to talk about it. It's like, no, like I'm living a great life. I'm totally doing fine. Like, no, I'm not lonely at all, but we all are. I think like we got like maybe a, a couple of DMs after that. People were like, we we totally resonated because we're all like our egos kind of, I feel like don't allow us to talk about it, which is why I thought the book or like the kind of some of the essays I read were so cool because you really kind of verbalized it. And it's like something hard to kind of, I think even to sit down and like admit to yourself that, you know, I want more and I'm kind of feeling like whatever I have right now isn't getting me by, which is like, I thought probably was like the coolest part about like all the work that you've done. I think that's such a good point on loneliness. I think that one of the things that really jumped out at me when I was working on that chapter in particular is that loneliness is such an ordinary feeling, but you're right. It feels completely stigmatized, and I don't know if that's cultural and societal. I don't know if that's personal. My guess is that it's probably a mix of both, that we think, you know— 
We're supposed to have these wide circles of friends and we're supposed to know people and know how to make those friends. And so I think that the reason that one stings so much or feels so vulnerable to talk about is because even as personal as work and school are, I think we internalize a lot of of self-worth based on those outcomes and failures that might come from them. There's still part of our brain that can go, okay, but that's work or that's a grade. I think friendship and community in particular feels so jarring when we don't have it or feel like we don't know how to have it is because there's still this narrative that that's supposed to come naturally like a thing that's just a given and everyone just kind of falls into and we know how to prioritize it and we know how to do it. And one of the things I loved about that chapter was hearing from people about the different ways that they really had to approach making friends or fostering community intentionally. It wasn't just a given. It was a thing that required, you know, pieces of them kind of putting that vulnerability out there and and hoping that someone else reaches back. And I think that that's such an interesting way to look at friendship rather than kind of the 20-something narrative of I'm surrounded by friends all the time and of course I can never be lonely because look at my great life. And the reality is you can have a great life, a great family, great friendships and still feel lonely sometimes and that's okay too. Because I'm still in college Mm -hmm. so I see these people every day or like I'm, you know, I'm forced to kind of like interact even if I don't want to I I still see these people and like I'll run into them and that just I think people don't talk about how weird it is I mean like obviously I don't know what it is like to leave college just yet but um like you know just talking to Feli about like you know having to leave a community behind and like having to figure it out in some place much bigger where there's like no set rules no set schedule and you have to kind of like make time to see people that must be super weird for people who just graduated. And I mean, I haven't experienced it yet, but it just sounds like um, you're trying to be like, oh, like I'm a young adult. Like I have my own apartment. I work a great job. Like I can go out whenever I want. But at the same time, it must also be like very disorienting because you're leaving. Because we've probably gone to school or like had some form of like set schedule all like our lives up, up until that point. So it must be pretty like disorienting to just leave that. And that's like the 20s. Yeah. In general, I don't think we do a great job supporting people as they transition out of high school or college if they went to college and into young adulthood. I don't think... I don't think we see that in society as enough of a transition. I think for people that go to college, we see high school to college is a pretty big one. And I think that that's kind of socially regarded as, oh, this big moment of change and all of these things are different. But I don't think we do an awesome job as a society on the back end kind of figuring out for people who did go to college or they finished high school and they've gone straight into the workforce, figuring out all of the logistics of what it means to live as an adult if they weren't already living that way. And I think a big part of that is the social and emotional part. I don't think that we anticipate young adults feeling lonely or feeling lost or confused after they've kind of, you know, checked the the benchmarks off of education. We kind of expect them to be like, go, you've, you know, you've got your credentials, good luck. And in reality, I think we would all be a lot better served if we really did start thinking of that transition as exactly what it is. It's a transition. It's hard and it's scary. It's wonderful in some ways and terrible in others. And I think we should talk about that a lot more than we do. Definitely. I can definitely contest to that. Just like going through it, I think it's much more challenging than I thought. And I think I'm lucky I have like individuals in the city that I can connect with. But like Annabelle said, I definitely left a community back in college and a lot of friends are still in Atlanta. I don't really have that kind of group here. And that was something I had to get used to along with like other adulting things that I had to like figure out. Even things like health insurance, like all the job things I have to fill out. Like my family is in Taiwan, so I kind of have to just like ask around and see what other parents are doing, like saying to their kids. Um, So definitely me and my friends who also just moved here, like definitely talk about that transitional phase so much. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, in terms of just like that whole ambition thing, I think even just starting a job um, back in college, it was like we had a lot of hobbies and clubs that we were passionate about. And that was kind of 
first of all, like studying and getting your degree was a priority, but also um, like working on other like extracurricular things on campus were something that filled up our time. And I think coming into like a full-time job where that was literally like eight hours of my day, like five days a week, I kind of lost that like spark I'd had with like things I genuinely really enjoyed back in college. When did you start noticing kind of yourself losing that kind of fire and spark for like an ambition? Oh, this is a great question. And I think just to speak a little bit to your earlier point, I think that's an important one too, because just as much as we disregard the transition to young adulthood and into the 20s being a transition, we also do this thing where we act like every young adult has the same resources and same information needed to navigate it, which is one more way the whole one-size-fits-all narrative of young adulthood just is not serving anyone well. If we were more focused on making sure everyone had support and resources that worked for their individual circumstances, I don't think you would be running around asking friends what their parents are telling them. I don't think that many young adults would be sitting quietly wherever they live thinking, I'm the only one that doesn't know what I'm doing. What's wrong with me that I'm the only one that doesn't know? And I do think that that ties a little bit into when I started noticing, um, not even just necessarily my ambition waning, but kind of a gear shift in how much effort I was willing or capable of putting forth um, in regard to a bunch of different things. And I think that it kind of coincided with, first of all, what meaning does this have beyond me? <laughs> and and how, what am I supposed to be contributing to something bigger than just my own self-interest? Uh, and number two, why am I the only one that hasn't been able to figure out how to do all of these things? To have a full-time job, to have hobbies, to have a robust social life, to cook, you know, perfect home-cooked meals for, for every day of the week, and have a pet and remember to walk the dog and keep up with all the maintenance that's required just to be human. Like, you could go on and on and on. And so I think that it was sort of this collision of disillusionment and thinking, wait a second, it is not possible for us to do all of these things in a day and maintain any semblance of sanity or well-being. And second of all, what's it all for? Why are we expected to be doing these things? And I think that what's so sad about the part of this that ties into, you know, you genuinely being interested in something and just not having the, the bandwidth to pursue that thing is that those are probably the things that we really need to be doing that are going to make us feel better and that are going to bring us back to ourselves. So that's kind of how I started thinking about it was the the combination of those two things. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I feel like me and Emma always talk about this, how there's constantly this guilt that we should be always productive and doing things and staying busy and and that come, kind of comes with ambition. Like, are you always working? Are you always kind of doing something on the side to kind of move forward in your career? And I think there's often this go of like having chill days. And even when I first moved to New York, I was constantly trying to fill out my schedule because I felt like that's what I had to do until I got burned out. Um, and I, I did feel that like go where I was like, oh, I shouldn't be just staying home and doing nothing, even though that's what I needed. Um, so why, why do you think there is that kind of go associated with just like relaxing? Oh my gosh. Uh, I think that first of all, historically, and just as a society, I think so much of this dates back and is connected back to capitalism and the idea that our value and our worth as human beings is contingent on what we produce. Uh, and usually what we produce in the form of dollars, whether those dollars are for someone else or for a boss. I think that the fixation on productivity really does come from the idea that we've attached sort of like a moral evaluation to how you spend your time. And we tend to value time more when it's considered productive, when it meets an external marker or a goal, something that's kind of proof like, hey, I did something. And the thing about having ambitions that orient around, you know, these external things is not that it's inherently a bad thing at all. For a lot of people, you know, accomplishing a goal that is technically external, like finishing a degree, that can be an incredibly personal, powerful thing. I think that where we've gone wrong and really 
brought the the guilt factor into it is that we have attached so much self-worth to doing everything at once, to meeting a million different benchmarks of success, even if they're ones that you individually haven't chosen. And we're very, very attached to doing things on a certain timeline that we think adds up to someone being quote unquote on track, not behind. They know what they're doing. They've got it figured out. And I think that it creates just a perfect storm of chaos to feel guilty for resting, uh, to feel guilty for doing anything that isn't productive in a way that we can see, in a way that we can feel, and tangibly gets us further along in some way. And I think the one of the many unfortunate things about that is that a lot of the things that don't materially move us forward are the things that, in my opinion, are really good for the soul and the spirit and the self. And it's things like rest and spending time in community with people we care about and doing things just because we enjoy them. And because we haven't come up with a way to quantify or monetize those things, they're seen as less productive and less worthy. I think that's wild because it also is super weird because I think we have social media now, so you can kind of track everybody's like every move and it I think it makes having like days where you're just kind of you know not doing anything much harder because you're seeing what everybody else is doing and I think that comparison that we've kind of like rooted in ourselves when we were super young um it kind of just jumps out and you can't you can't hold it back and it kind of I think that whole all of the guilt um kind of also comes with you know having access to see what everybody else is doing all the time and that you know, it might not be a good thing because I think if I see it, I, I definitely can't help myself but to think a little, oh, maybe I should be doing that. Or even if they're just hanging out, I should be like, maybe I should make more of an effort to like reach out to friends, even if I didn't want to that day or even if I, you know, just wanted to spend some time by myself. I think that whole comparison thing is so like, it's so wild. And we, we don't, don't think we make an effort to kind of get rid of it. It's like, you know, it's just pain that we kind of just walk into and we don't really try to make an effort to get out of. It's always, no matter what it is, whether it's work or school or personal or some mix of all three, it's always about being a little something more. There's a little something more you could be doing, a, a better way that you could be doing it, a little more you could be if you just worked a little harder. And exactly as you said, because we are existing in a world where we can kind of see our perception of what we think other people are doing online or in classes or, you know, again, on LinkedIn and in our workplaces, it really does become this guilt factor of, well, if they're doing it and I'm not doing it, are they ahead and I'm behind? Kind of how does this even out the metric of what my life is going to turn out to be, which is a very daunting question. And I think that one of the reasons that it feels so hard to kind of personally check yourself and go, no, wait, I can do it differently. I don't have to be doing it the way someone else is doing it, is that when you think about it, the structures of society we exist in do not encourage that at all. They really like us to be on track and productive and feeling like we're constantly behind because the thing is that when you feel like you're behind, you work extra hard to try and get ahead and catch back up. Um, and that's, again, to, I think, the benefit of capitalism. It's why it really wants us to keep doing that. And I think that it, it's very hard for us as individuals and even in community with each other to go, okay, no, we're going to try something else. I think it's important that we do try, but it's certainly not as easy as just, you know, switching a light on and off. Yeah, I think, oh my gosh, this just like made me remember, like last summer I was working like oh. literally an unpaid internship. Like Feli knows about this. Like it was unpaid. It was pro It was like literally free labor. And um, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like I have to do this so I get ahead so I can get another internship next year. Like to the point where I was like literally available to my boss like 24-7. Like she could text me at 11 p.m. being like, hey, and I'm like, where's this deck? And I'll be like, oh my gosh, like let me get it to you right now. But I think that kind of all also happens because there's kind of like a competition of like who is doing more now. And somehow, like, you know, being busy and, like, working yourself to, like, the brink of, you know, burnout or completely to burnout 
has like become a good thing. Why do you think so many of us have like, you know, had conversations to compete? Like, you know, who is the busiest and why is that somehow like, I, you know, capitalism obviously is an underlying factor, but why do so many of us kind of run towards that measuring point now? I, th- I do think that the, the foundation of capitalism is probably the biggest one, because I think rather than a lot of us running toward it, I think we are brought up in it. Uh, I think from a very, very young age, for a lot of us, achievement was ranked and benchmarked and always done in comparison to someone else. It's not enough that you might have gotten an A on a test that you studied really hard for if the kid next to you that makes the honor roll that you hear about over the loudspeaker got an A. And it's kind of this weird double incentive, I think, especially now that I'm, I'm talking to people about how formative things like grades and pressure surrounding that were and how it still feels formative to who they are as adults, you know, it's comparison for the kid that got the B or the C. It's it's a moral evaluation on them. Like, you didn't work as hard as your classmate, so if you work harder, you can have this too. It also heaps a ton of pressure on the kid that maybe did get the great grade, and they're like, well, I did it once, so now I've got to go do it, you know, 12 more times throughout my every year of, of my education all the way from K through 12. And then we amp that up with college when we start adding on things like unpaid internships or jobs or all of these resume builders. And now I think it's it's kind of hit this interesting point where because these things that used to be really unusual or considered really exceptional, like having 45 internships or starting a nonprofit or doing all of these quote unquote incredible things, because that has become so normalized, people feel like they have to do even more if they want to stand out from the from that part of it. And so I think that we're brought up in it before a lot of us even realize that we are encouraged to be in constant competition with each other and that we're constantly wired by our society to want to do better than the person next to us because we've been told that's what's going to give you security and stability and self-worth. Just keep going. Always, always, always just keep going no matter what. And I think that that framing skims over so much uh, from systemic racism that is embedded in our society in regard to whose labor gets valued in the first place and who's having to work three times as hard to go half as far. I think it gets into things like the economic resources or familial support that a young person has that their family can kind of pour into them and support them. I think it touches on so many sociodemographic factors that just get no airtime when we blanket it as here are the high achievers that are in constant competition and then here are the people that are really behind and need to catch up that we're in this like whirlwind of what is going on and how are we supposed to figure out what choices are just for us like what are the goals that we're setting because we've decided that they are important to us in some way as opposed to I need to do better than the person next to me because I have been told that that is what I need to do in order to feel okay about myself and about my life. Yeah, that, no, that like really hits because this podcast, right? This podcast purely started because of a hobby because um, it was literally a FaceTime call. And then we were like, "Hmm, how, like, how cool would it be if we like, just like, you know, talked on air for like, recorded our chats. Yeah. um, Like, at first, it was a joke, and I think both of us had to really make a point to tell ourselves, um, hey, like, we shouldn't compare ourselves to other people, because we have friends who also have podcasts, and, you know, you see these things on social media, and obviously, when you when you have an account that is in podcasting, you get recommended, you get linked to, like, other people who are doing the same thing as you. I'm sure, you know, you experience that, too, as an author, and we literally had to sit ourselves down in the first month and you know, just say, hey, like, it goes where it goes. It doesn't matter if it goes somewhere or if it doesn't. It's just something we enjoy, you know, doing. And, like, still to this day, I think we still catch ourselves, like, on the stats a little bit. It's a little hard not to, I want to say. Um, and this is, like, what our, like our seventh month of doing this. We didn't think we would last this long, to be honest. But um, I think it's real. it's so hard <laughs> to not. Oh, (laughs) it's, it's so hard. And I like, I think about on the book side, when I published the book or was writing the book, I didn't realize that these things like 
uh, reviews and ratings and rankings. Like I had a very naive approach to that. I read the books that I was interested in reading. A lot of them I absolutely loved. Some of them I didn't and just kind of carried on with my life. And I knew that there were people who were phenomenally talented book reviewers, whether for a publication or on Instagram, and there's so many cool ways of doing it. But what I didn't realize was that there are very specific metrics that you can get on the internet and read. And that was the wildest thing because it's it's completely outside of your control, but at the same time, you're getting emails telling you how much that matters. And so you're sitting there going, am I supposed to pay attention to it? It'd probably be a lot healthier if I ignored it, but also it's sitting right here on my computer machine and I can look at it. And I think that it's very hard to kind of have the approach that I think you all just talked about so brilliantly where it's like, it goes where it goes. And that's what I've tried to do with this book. It's like, if it makes one person feel less alone about one thing, it's done what it needs to do. It doesn't have to be for everybody. Not everybody is going to relate to every part of it, and they shouldn't. Everybody should have their own opinion on what extraordinary or ordinary mean to them. And so I think it's kind of having to navigate the very tricky, in my opinion, part of I'm putting it out there, I'm doing what I can, and then I'm stepping back, and I'm going to tell myself that, you know, I'm worthy and I'm okay regardless of of what the metrics of the thing look like. And I think people who aren't, you know, writing things or podcasting and doing audio, I think everybody has their version of that, of kind of having to put themselves out there, go as far as they can, and then be like, okay, but that's not the end of me. It's not the beginning of me. It's just one part of me. And I really am okay without those measurements. Yeah, that's, I think that definitely is like the hardest thing to do especially because like at the core of it we're just like putting ourselves out there and it's so hard to um you know accept whatever it is people are saying about you or you know like rejections because we've all probably had to handle like you know our own fair like share of that but then after that reminding ourselves that it's okay, but rejections also, like, aren't something you talk about with people. Like, you don't sit down at dinner and be like, hey, I got, like, three rejection emails today, but, like, that's fine, because, like, I'm sure you did, too, because I think we all carry some, like, weird shame around that, because it's almost, you know, sometimes it's not personal. They just, like, it's not about you, but I think we always frame it like it's about us, so I think partially why we were so adamant about the fact that this is a thing that goes where it goes is that we don't want it to take it personally because that would um that would not do great like with our mental health and how we exist like on the internet oh I think that that's I think that that's such a good point and I think the mental health aspect of it is a big one I think it's very hard to put any piece of yourself out there whether it's a creative project or a work pursuit or even being vulnerable with someone you want to be friends with or you're interested in dating I think any time you bring yourself to the table and there is a risk of being rejected, that's one of the scariest things on earth. (laughs) And I know a lot of people that are like, I run toward rejection. I don't fear it at all. And in reality, I am not one of those people. I get anxious every time. I get anxious every time I send a pitch. I get anxious every time I send a text message I think is risky. (laughs) And I've come to accept that that is just kind of how my brain operates and, and how my mental health goes on things that I deem risky. And so I think it's a continual process of trying to figure out, okay, this thing, this project or this text message or whatever it is, it can feel personal to me. It can be personally important. It can have parts of my personality and myself in it that make it meaningful. But my whole entire personhood is not contingent on the outcome of whatever this is. I think that that's been the big part of it for me is figuring out, okay, how how can you say this is personal to me because it's important to me, but also the whole of who I am as a person is not resting on whatever this outcome is or whatever someone's reaction to this is. And I can kind of keep going regardless. And I think that we would all be a lot better served if we did talk more openly about not just rejection, but also about shame and about being intimidated and about second guessing. Cause I think that's a big part of it too. You know, 
there are parts of this book I'd go back and rewrite if I could. Of course I would. I don't know any author that would say that they wouldn't. And there are certainly actions in my personal life that I look back and I'm just like, oh, why did you send that text message? Why did, why did we do that? And it's having to, to be patient with yourself as you grow too is what I've learned. Yeah, definitely. And kind of going back to um, the more just to capitalism and how like racism and everything that stems from like how we have these kind of success measurements, I was wondering kind of like how I, I think in your post about your new book, um, something that resonated was like how ambition can be a privilege and there's kind of intersectionality behind just even having ambition at all. And I would say like both Anna and I are kind of in similar positions where um, we immigrated to the U.S. and I had the privilege of like going to a college here, um, getting a degree and like even finding a job in the U.S. as a citizen too. Um, and I think that's the reason why we're even having this conversation is because like that's an opportunity for us. Um, so I kind of want to touch on that point about like what you think about um, intersectionality and ambition. Oh, it's such a phenomenal question. And I think that one of the things I've learned, I should say I'm at the very beginning stages of reporting this second book, but I think that my two big takeaways so far has been everybody kind of has a personal definition of what ambition means to them. And I think that sometimes that bumps up a little bit against the societal one, which is usually, you know, ambitious toward a set of external goals or objectives that you have a really strong desire to meet in some way. And some of those are because they matter to you. Others are because, again, that's kind of what we've been told is important. So of course we're going to work toward it. And I think the second one is that because there's so much nuance in these definitions, the way we talk about ambition is not equally applied. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people so far that don't feel like ambition is something that applies to them at all. And I think that some of that is because most of our common language around it really do tie ambition to be an exclusively work or educationally related thing. And so their framing of it is, I'm having to work so hard to get by in a society that doesn't, first of all, seem to want me to get by, and second of all, certainly does not want me to aspire, that how on earth am I supposed to be ambitious on top of everything else I'm doing just to kind of keep going every day? I've also heard from a lot of people who feel that because of their race, because of their gender, because of where they come from, because of different aspects of their identity that overlap, they either aren't allowed to be ambitious or that ambition isn't built for them. And I think the structural component of that is really big because we like to encourage everyone dream big and really go for your goals and really, really ignore that we are not even coming close to starting from the same starting line with the same set of resources to even run the race. And so I think that even in some of the the more modern ways we talk about ambition as this empowering, motivating thing, if we are not looking at the intersectional overlap between what informs your idea of ambition and whether you think it's built for you, I think we're having fundamentally the wrong conversation about it. I think that what I've heard from people over and over again is that when you're told over and over again that you don't have the resources, that something isn't meant for you, that people aren't open to your ideas or your desires or even your beliefs about how your own life should go, Ambition is not going to be the thing that overcomes all of those things, and it shouldn't have to be. We should be giving everyone the resources to feel fulfilled in their own lives, have the priorities that feel important to them, and be ambitious toward those things without telling them that they're doing it wrong and that really they don't belong in the context of ambitious people. That was a really long-winded answer, <laughs> but I, I think that I think that it all overlaps so much that you really can't talk about one piece of it without talking about everything else. It is really true. I think we've all really been handed like a definition of ambition and it's like it's always been like work or you know climb the corporate ladder or something along those lines especially because you know if I graduate from the business school I am in the business school I think that part of um like goals are like super clearly highlighted for us like I just remember taking like professional development courses and they kind of sit you down and they're like hey here's the corporate ladder 
um, here are all the things you need to climb it. But, you know, <laughs> just based on, like, quite literally, here is how you climb it. Yeah. But just looking at, like, the different kinds of people in that room, you know, like, I couldn't help to think to myself, like, you know, this might not be what I needed. It, it's not really what I needed. And can you imagine, like, someone with, um, I, I feel like I already am in a pretty privileged standpoint, you know, having immigrated to Canada and, like, you know, my parents were able to send me to a U.S. college, you know, and if that's not even kind of what fit me, can you imagine people who, you know, didn't even feel, like, even more, they felt probably even feel more uncomfortable in that room. And it's wild because they, and that's already, like, resources we say we appreciate because I, I talk to people in the college and they say, hey, like, we've not even had any guidance on how to do this whole career search thing because it's daunting so it's so weird that they put this in front of you and they're like hey you should get a career and you should climb the ladder and maybe it's time to like start working but not they don't even hand us like the rule book or some of us and it's wild that they perpetuate such like a big thing and tell you to you know depend your whole like self-worth on it but then don't even give you all like the stepping stones to get there and they kind of shame you when you don't get there because it's like, hey, you know, you're coming to college. Like, why aren't you pursuing all of this when they don't really even tell you how to in the first place? Um, so I just think that's honestly wild. And nobody really talks about it because it's it's like uncomfortable to talk about. We treat aspiring and ambition as though they are equally applied, which is one of the reasons I could sit and listen to you talk about what's happened in these classes for hours, because it's just such a good illustration. And I think the thing that before you have any real foundational conversation on reimagining ambition and thinking about what it would look like if it was more sustainable or applied to things beyond work or beyond school, things we could measure Ambition exists in a society in the United States, the United States as a whole, systemically racist, classist, ableist, completely dismissive of giant swaths of people and giving resources to even fewer of those people. And I think that until we really reckon with that, how much even these things that we think of kind of as feelings, which I think we do with ambition, we think of it as a thing that you've either got in you or you just don't, how much those things are impacted by the resources someone has and the circumstances they're in. I think that we're just kind of talking around the thing without really talking about it. And I think that what happened in your class is the perfect example of that. You know, they're handing out the how-to of climbing the corporate ladder and apparently haven't looked up to realize for some people, there's no ladder at all. For other people, there are steps falling off of the bottom or a gap that's 10 feet wide in between one step and another. And I think that if we continue pushing these measurements, these ladders, these external objectives as though they are one size fits all and equally applied, we're going to continue to deepen disparities. We're going to miss out on the incredible ideas and contributions that someone can make to their community and to our world. And I think that we're going to continue to harm people because I think that's another thing about ambition is that, you know, it's spun now as a true virtue. Like you need to have it to hack it in the real world. It's something that's important and valuable. It's also responsible for some of the most destructive human behavior in history. And I don't think that, again, we can have a conversation on what it means to earn things and be ambitious without looking at who we're allowing to earn the things to begin with and that we're earning things that shouldn't be earned. We should just have them inherently as a society. Yeah, that is so true. And just like in the U.S. in general, I think both me and Annabelle in like marketing and more creative roles and even as someone who like throughout college I was like this is what I'm gonna do like I'm not gonna go into like very corporate job and which I am and now so I guess like kind of also got swayed throughout college like oh maybe that's what I should be doing like post-grad to prepare me for the next step and I can eventually pursue like what I really want to do later on when I'm like more financially stable and I have that this kind of corporate experience under my belt um, and I think there's so much kind of stigma against anything but that in capitalism in the U.S. And um, and one thing I was more curious about was I know of your researches or the majority of them and from our experiences in the U.S., we definitely see all these problems 
in the systems that we're in. Do you think this is something that's kind of unique to America or do you think um, other countries do a better job or other cultures do a better job in addressing these things? That's a great question. I'm not totally sure I'm qualified to speak to it. I'll say that in my limited, admittedly, historical research, I think Western society's fixation on monetizing everything, on productivity and productive human beings, and this idea that your productivity is your worth as a human being is very specific and very narrow. And I think it's why there aren't steps taken to address or enact policies that would allow more people to be ambitious about different parts of their lives or to imagine their lives in different ways. And I'm thinking of, to name very few, universal basic income and paid leave and universal health care. These things that materially change your quality of life have to change the things you would decide to pursue or ways that you would decide to spend your time if you really, truly had the choice. Um, And I think that under capitalism, we actually don't want very many people to have those choices. We don't want people to have the choice to not work a job that exploits or harms them. We don't want people to have the choice to not be productive or to derive their sense of worth and meaning and well-being from somewhere else. And so I think that Until America decides to tackle the roots of the problem instead of, you know, putting out these things that we do all the time and particularly to children and young people of have high self-esteem, raise your self-esteem, go for your goals, you can do anything, when in reality, no, of course you can't. I think until we tackle the roots of the problem, it is going to be very, very hard for people to be expected to change it themselves. Because again, that's one more individualized solution. Like I can sit and tell you all day long, hey, having work-life balance is really important. Having hobbies you do for fun is good for you. But if every second of your time is spent worried about not working enough hours that you need to pay your rent while you're doing the hobby, is it really benefiting you? And the answer, unfortunately, is probably no. Yeah, I think we we kind of all like are aware there's a problem, but I think nobody really wants to look at the root because I think it's it's really weird that we kind of tell our kids, we're like, you know, we were told as kids, like, you're special, like, you matter. You're, like, such an individual. Um, but at the same time, like, I think as we're growing into adults, there's also very much, like, the flip narrative where they're, like, if you can't keep up, you're weak. And um, because you're weak, you're complaining. And because you're complaining, you're kind of, like, a loser. Um, I feel like that that genuinely is such, like, a present thing. Um, like, the same time that we're saying all of these, like, nice things to, to the younger, like, our younger selves, like, as we grow up and as we approach, like, adulthood, as soon as you're not willing to buy into it, you're labeled as, like, weak when, when you, you really are not. And, you know, I think that honestly is so harmful because just because you kind of want something else, it's, it's, they're telling you, like, that's not attainable. Why would you even want that? Like, you're so weird for even thinking about that. Oh, I have like 36,000 <laughs> thoughts on this. I think the, the complaining, the complaining, the complaining piece upsets me so much because it is literally people complaining about other people complaining. And my response to that is look around you at the state of the world and the state of the United States in particular. Do you honestly think this is going well? And if not, why on earth would you not complain about it? I don't understand this idea that, well, this is what it is. And so you need to just, you know, quit complaining about it and move forward anyway. No, people are complaining about it because there is something better that we can have and people deserve to have the better thing. And I think that going back to the idea of, you know, being told that you're special and you're an individual, I think that we've taken those concepts as people age and kind of flip them around. When we're told we're special and we're individuals as children, usually it's there are parts of your personality and parts of your soul and parts of who you are that are unique to you and you're special because of who you are, not what you do. You're special because you're you and we value you for that. And then as we age, and I think this really does kind of hit uh, a turning point in young adulthood in particular, it's, 
you need to earn your way into being special and you need to prove that you're different than everyone else. And yeah, you're an individual, which means you should be able to go everything alone. And if you find that you can't, not only are you complaining or a failure, you're also lazy and you're not working as hard and you're not doing as well as everyone around you is doing. And so I think that that's a really interesting point that the script does kind of flip somewhere in the middle where we take these things that we used to really value and almost use them as weapons to keep people from questioning, maybe I don't have to feel this bad every day. Maybe I shouldn't be this tired all the time. Maybe the buck in my life shouldn't stop with work and with school. And maybe there's other meaningful ways I want to spend my life and my time. And I really don't even think we do that with children now. I think that I hear my friends who are parents talk a lot about overscheduling and the expectations both on them as parents and on their children as children to perform and produce. And so I actually don't think this is getting better. I think it might be getting worse. And I hate to say that. I think it's just starting younger. Like I yeah. hear about parents like, you know, doing a lot of stuff like money classes for their kids just to get into like a good kindergarten, which is absolutely wild because they're like they're like what the kids are oh my gosh like what three four and like they don't even have any awareness of what's going on yet but like at the same time like all their parents are like go 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 and you know there's always like the saying of like oh you can't lose at the starting line but like what is losing at the starting line people who don't even have the privilege to you know think about getting their kids to a good kindergarten and I I think you know this is not to be like, I don't think this is a blanket statement, but I think a lot of people who, you know, talk about like complaining and you shouldn't complain are people like the system benefits because it works for them. And they don't need to think about why it doesn't work because, you know, they climb the corporate ladder fairly well. And they complain about having diversity programs or programs that benefit, you know, women. And at the same time, you hear them complaining, you're kind of like, like, I wonder why we have to even think about giving opportunity to someone else because, you're kind of like the perfect cutout for what works right now. And unfortunately, you don't exist by yourself anymore. Like, unfortunately, we kind of also want to do things. <laughs> it's like, whoa, what a thought. <laughs> I think that's so, such a good point. You're complaining because you're complaining about people complaining because you have nothing to complain about. It's working just fine for you. So, of course, who cares? who it might be actively harming. And I think we even see that with parents. You know, I think there's a lot, and I'm, I'm not a parent, so I don't want to speak for parents, obviously, and parents aren't a monolith just like young people aren't. But I think we hear so much about helicopter parenting or stage parents or parents just, you know, refusing to accept anything less than perfect. But then you have to kind of dial that back and think, well, all of these individual parents didn't adopt that mentality if they have it. I'm not convinced all of them do. I think we really like to hype that up. But all of these individuals didn't magically adopt this line of thought on their own. I'm sure that as a parent looking at the world now and wanting your child to be safe and successful and okay... Of course you look at all these things and think, well, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that this turns out okay for my child later on. And I think that we see that in every system, not just parenting. I think that young adults see it. I think people of all ages see it. I think if we're told over and over, this is what it takes, of course eventually we're going to fall into those things. We, most of us really don't have another choice. And I think that that's where, where we miss a lot is blaming individual people for their attitudes toward things like achievement or perfectionism or overwork instead of going back and looking at exactly as you just did who is this benefiting why are we not angry at the systems that are driving this mm -hmm. we often talk about like the tiger mom trope and like both with like asian parents obviously and there i feel like there's a stigma in the u.s against just like asian moms being like so strict and so intimidating and forcing their like young Asian kids to go take violin classes, like all kinds of music classes and other stuff. And we, of course, like when we're young, we're like, oh, like why are we like forced to do these things? I'm just like trying to play and be a kid basically. But now looking back, it's like, there's a reason why we had to do those things. And there's a reason why 
or like Asian parents have that kind of mentality, and that is to survive in the U.S. and to kind of get ahead in that starting line, quote unquote. Um, that doesn't exist, obviously. But as a parent, you want your child to succeed and not go through like the hard work and all the stuff they have to go through when they immigrated. So totally see where that's coming from, and there's there's just so much. Uh, so much to unpack. No, I was I was very much so raised by a tiger mom. Um, like my friends were scared of my mom when I was younger, which is <laughs> wild. And I used to hate it. Like I used to, I remember like I had something to do every day after school. Like I can't remember what it is anymore, but I definitely remember like having like, you know, you know how like after school goes out, people like go on the playground. I remember like not going to the playground, like going straight to my mom's car. And then like, you know, just like sitting in the car, like being so miserable. And like, I hated it. Um, and I hated, I was like, I hated all of the things I was doing. I didn't quite understand why my mom was doing it. And I think after going to college and like, you know, seeing how those skills, I not saying that I loved my life back then, but seeing like how those skills I gathered when I was, you know, like 12 years old, like manifest when I'm like 20, I think I'm a little more appreciative, not like, but at the same time, I feel con like, I feel really conflicted because like, do I want to promote that kind of thing? No, but then have I benefited from, you know, being overworked? Yes. So I don't know. I just feel really conflicted about, you know, having to work so hard, but then also having benefited from it. But I'm also like very appreciative that my mom kind of, you know, was like, you need to survive in a Western world that doesn't value you as much. Um, so I think that's also really hard because I don't want to put that on other people, but at the same time, I kind of like got some okay things out of, you know, having an overscheduled life mm -hmm. when I was younger. I think that is complicated. And I think it's, it's similar in conversations I've had with parents about the privilege involved in being able to let their kids do things, yeah. you know, activities or pursue things where I was talking to one parent who was describing you know, yes, that they were very privileged that their children were in piano lessons and baseball and all of these other things, but she's a black mother. And what would it be like for her kid to not have to do all of those things to prove themselves? Um, and I certainly don't want to speak for anyone, but I think that one of the reasons that interview stood out to me so much is that it is a privilege to be able to do things that you know, further a college application or a job resume or just further your life. And it's also a privilege to be in the position where you could not do any of those things and have any of those extras and have it turn out pretty okay for you. And I think that that's, you know, a, f a fine line in how we talk about not just how people parent, but in how we were raised. And I wish that conversations exactly like what you're describing, where it's these conflicted feelings, got a lot more airtime. Like going into more microscope things um, to just, I'm personally curious, kind of, I know you touch on such like great points and um, reflection on just everything about like the 20s being ordinary and ambitions and everything. Um, what are some kind of things that you have tried to implement it in kind of your daily life to kind of make sure you're kind of focused and kind of living up to like all these things that we just talked about? I think that the, my biggest takeaway on that is that there's never going to be a day where I wake up and think, oh yeah, I've got it. I know I've got it and I know what I'm doing and I know how to do all of these things in a way that's sustainable and meaningful. And I really, I really have embraced everything that I've reported on. I think that it is an ongoing thing. I think that the biggest thing that I try to keep in mind, both in terms of slowing down and ordinariness, but also just my life in general, is that I am here to learn and to do better because of what I have learned. I think that if, I think I'm in a very privileged position of getting to talk to people about really interesting and vulnerable things about their own lives. And I think that it is absolutely my job and responsibility to learn from those and try to do better. And if I'm not being told I'm wrong on some of them, I am probably doing something wrong and probably not pushing my own thinking enough. So I think that the process of continual learning is a big one because I think that when you separate yourself from 
having to get it right and digging your heels in and making the point that you're right, you're right, you're right. I think first of all, it opens you up as a human being to other people's experiences that you're not going to get right because you're not them. And I think and hope that it encourages empathy and thinking about me outside of myself and figuring out what I'm here for that isn't just about my goals or how I might like my life to turn out, but what I'm going to do in service of other people. And I think that that's been a really big one for me and was a big one throughout the book where I felt like so much trust had been placed in me with people's stories and it felt like such an honor to get to write something like that, that I felt like I owed it to them to try and keep learning and keep trying to do different things because of what I'd learned. I think in terms of more tangible practices in my day-to-day life, I'm trying to do better about truly logging off and separating my self-worth from work. And I think that the only ways I've been able to do that right now have been really concrete. Like I am shutting the computer at six o'clock, no matter what deadline feels like a fire that I need to put out, I am going on a walk. I am going to listen to my sister talk about her day. I am going to call a friend that I haven't gotten to see in a long time. I'm going to bake something. And I think that all of those things sound so small and it is certainly a privileged position to be in, to be able to do any of them. I think that when we talk about encouraging people to have work-life balance, (laughs) what we miss a lot is that shouldn't have to be an individual thing. It should be a systemic one that allows people the resources to actually have balance in their lives and not have their lives center around work. So I don't want to I don't want to not address the fact that even these small actions are privileged ones. But I think for me, it helps to tangibly take the devices and turn them off of the work channels and, and kind of physically move into something else so my brain will move along with me. And mostly I think it's a combination of that and being open to the fact that I'm going to get it wrong a lot (laughs) and that's okay as long as I figure out what I can do better or do differently the next time. No, that's super helpful and I think it's something that we both have to keep in mind and obviously hard when you're kind of caught up in like the everyday Mm -hmm. schedule and work and school and everything, but definitely something we all have to work on. And I know you mentioned earlier that you're still working on this, so no pressure for like a perfect answer. This is oh, a process of growing through, but how do you think we should pursue ambition just more sustainably as individuals, as a society, anything? Oh my gosh. Okay, so I think twofold. I think first of all, you all know by now that I'm going to name off the structural stuff. I think we need policies um, that help people do that. And I'm excited to about the experts I've got lined up to interview about that. And I'm hoping that this book has some very specific things to list off in that regard. And I do think it's going to be things like raising wages, universal health care, paid leave, things that allow people to be human beings first, not workers first. Uh, Even if you really like your work, you should be a person before you are anything else. And we should have a society that allows people to exist on the full spectrum of being human and different, having different needs in different areas of their lives, not just what's going to serve them in work. And I think second, the conclusion I've come to so far is we actually need a much more expansive, inclusive, community-centered idea of ambition. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier, you know, we really think of ambition as being a work and a school thing. And we think that usually because those are the things we can measure. And again, not inherently a bad thing. If you feel comfortable tracking your progress and that gives you a lot of personal satisfaction, a lot of personal growth, I'm never going to tell anyone that something they feel impacts them in a positive way like that is something they shouldn't do. But I think we can do better. And I think that we can reimagine ambition to be about how we prioritize and what we desire across things like our friendships and our communities, how we spend our free time and the kind of world that we envision building together rather than something that is so externally focused. I actually think that we can make ambition more individual and feel more personal by making it more of a collective ideology and more community centered rather than just about individual achievement. That kind of reminds me of just a separate point, but I know like there's new policy with like quarantining five days and 
I saw an article about how that in itself is just so individualistic and it's putting capitalism or being productive, monetizing everything first before like a human's health, which is, I feel like there's no question about that. So uh, that just reminds me of that. Yeah. And there's already, not to go off on a tangent about this, but I was reporting a story on it last week and there are already employers that are taking advantage of this. Because the, the, the way it is written is so wide open for loopholes that it has been interpreted to mean come back at the five-day mark and we're going to be very uh, loose in our definition of what day five is. Come back even if you're running a fever and coughing and still showing symptoms. It's, it's awful. And you're exactly right. It just sets human beings up to be exploited. It puts capitalism and profit ahead of the lives of human beings, which we have seen over and over throughout this pandemic. And it's just bad. I interviewed a doctor who even cited that guidance specifically and was like, this people have no idea how bad this is. It's really bad. Yeah, I I feel like it's just full of bad news. And like at this point, nothing's gonna change drastically, I think. So it's just hoping for things to get a little better at this point, which is sad, but a little better is better than none at all, I think. Well, and it's, it's a little better, I think, is better than going backward, which it feels exactly. like going, is this year two or three? I can't even keep track. But, you know, like we should be paying people to stay home for the health of everyone. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, not to get off a tangent on COVID and the pandemic and not to also end the episode on this or anything, but... <laughs> Uh, this is such a good conversation i feel like we could talk for hours and hours and we just learned so much from you so yeah thank you so much for chatting with us this has been so great likewise this was an honor and i feel like i learned so much over the course of our conversation so thank you all for letting me ramble and learn and and think aloud (laughs) with you yeah no always down for a ramble that's i feel like (laughs) that's what anna and i do that is our brand thank you so much and yeah we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next week we'll see you next week thank you all